Um, we, are, we are finishing the book of Genesis today in chapter 50. So we will read the second half of Genesis 50, verses, starting at verse 15, ending at verse 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. This is the word of the Lord, and do you know what I... Um, what I love most about us wrapping up this service or this uh, book today in this service is that if you've been here over the last few years, um, pretty much the entirety of the book of Genesis has been read out loud in this room. Isn't that a cool thought? And if you've been here, you've heard the book of Genesis read out loud. Um, that's in some ways the most important thing we do on this day. And that's why we say the word of the Lord together. Because it's not just for you. It's not just for me. It's not just for an individual. It's for us. We hear it together, and so it's good at times to use our voices in unison. Even if it's something we repeat every Sunday, of course something can become kind of dead repetition and rote, but there's, there is a, an influence and a habit forming and a, and a soul-shaping thing that happens when we say it, if you mean it, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that happens when we do that week after week after week. And I know some Sundays you've shown up and you're probably like, why are we reading this passage out loud? What is, you know, like some names or something. And that's why we do it. It is God's word. And now we come to the end of this book to wrap up the Genesis series and the life of Joseph, a series that started 
this is part four of a Genesis. We broke it into four um, sections that we began actually in September 2019. We did other things in between if you're new, so didn't think, we didn't do Genesis for like three and a half years. We did a lot of other things in between, but it spanned that three years and about 60 messages. And we've been seeing in the life of Joseph most clearly today as we wrap up that one of the biggest themes in the life of Joseph is addressing the problem of evil. The, uh, 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 theophany, or, or theodicy, excuse me, as it's called in theology, theodicy, the problem of evil. What's, it's a big problem. We have a good God who says he's all powerful and yet really bad things happen to you, don't they? Really hard things happen to you. And actually, this is what brings about the most, the most objections to Christianity is the problem of evil in the world and in personal lives. This big problem. I was talking to a woman in town this week who professes faith, and she was telling me about her young daughter who had lost her um, 30-year-old husband in June, uh, father of a couple kids, I think. And when I asked her about her daughter's faith, because the mother professed faith, she said her daughter's faith, yeah, she's really struggling. And she has been struggling. She struggles with the question of why God allows bad things to happen. And that's a common struggle and biggest struggle for most of our youth, millennial Gen Y today. But don't we all struggle with that, actually? Even the Christians struggle with that, those who profess faith. Why, God? The problem of evil in the world, if you are all-powerful and all-good, and you say that, can they both be true when we look at the world? Joseph's life hits this head-on. And we've seen in Joseph's life over and over again that when God's silent, it doesn't mean he's absent. It doesn't mean that. Or that when he's hidden, it doesn't mean that he's powerless. In fact, from our view, as we've read this book, and, and, and from our view, uh, the life of Joseph and his brothers, we know for certain that when God seemed most absent and things seemed most to be going wrong, God was working his most in their life, wasn't he? We've seen that in this book. So when you look at your life on the surface and judge God by what you see on the surface, that's like the worst thing you can do, according to the life of Joseph in the end of this book of Genesis. It's the worst thing you can do. I'm convinced we see life like looking through a front door peephole. Like that's how we see life. We only see a fraction of the picture of life or of other people's lives that we look at, or, or a fraction of or a people of history too. That's what we really see. And we're looking through this tiny distorted people. And as we've seen Joseph and his brothers, God has used these incredible things in their life, things that we've described as frosty, remember the alternating frost and sun that he used in their lives, frosty situations, the hard ones, you might call even evil happening to them, the sunny situations, the good things of life, alternating them in these people's lives to break them open to the grace of God. So this morning now, it's 17 years later, after this reconciliation, or at least this partial reconciliation between Joseph and the brothers, and they still don't trust him. 17 years now, they've been living and flourishing in Egypt and having kids and kids having kids. Jacob has died, and they go and they send a messenger to Joseph and basically say to, that, to, to, to uh, Joseph, dad said to play nice with us. 
That's pretty much what they're doing. We know how this works, right? You send your oldest down to the basement to tell your youngest to turn off the TV, and they say, uh, turn off the TV, guys. They don't do it, right? But if you send them with, dad says, turn off the TV, sometimes it carries a little more weight behind it. <laughs> you get results, right? The brothers don't trust Joseph. There's not been full restoration yet, true restoration. And as you see their words, they do at least, you have to give them credit, they do at least acknowledge the evil, they seek forgiveness, it's a full confession, it's very honest, but in the process, they lie. Most commentators think Jacob probably never said this, their dad, probably never said these words. He never said, go tell Joseph to play nice. They're making this up. And Joseph breaks down weeping. Weeping. He's the toughest guy. He's the most powerful guy. And he's weeping. Men of God, people of God are sometimes the most confident because they know that they're saved by grace alone and the God who loves them, but also just humble because they know the same truth. And in touch with their emotions, he weeps in front of his brothers. How weak could he look? He weeps in front of his brothers because though, even though he's forgiven them, he realizes, we don't have true restoration yet. They don't even trust me. Well, in the conclusion of our Genesis series, Joseph in verses 19 to 21, which we're going to spend most of our time, he completes the restoration by showing really the pinnacle, the heights, the, the, the zenith of a person of obedient faith from a heart that grasps grace. I love Derek Kidner. He has this tiny commentary on Genesis it's so punchy. I love this, what he says about it. He says, each sentence of this threefold reply, that's verses 19 to 21, is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writings of one's wrongs to God, to see his providence in man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection, are the attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. So that's what we're going to see today in Joseph's life uh, in these verses 19 to 21. We're going to look at three marks of a changed heart. Three marks of a changed heart in Joseph's response to them in verses 19 to 21. Marks that you and I can have too. So hopefully you've got your outline open there, your Bible open too, to the end of Genesis, the last page of, of this book, as we look at the first mark of a changed heart. Here it is. Joseph doesn't take God's seat at the head of the table. It's the first mark in his changed heart. He doesn't take the seat reserved at the head of the table only for God, God's seat, God's chair, God's place. In verse 19, Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, which he says twice to them, am I in God's place? In other words, do I, Joseph, do I act as God? They were so certain that this man, Joseph, who had, who had the closest thing to God-like power in Egypt, he did, they were so sure he was going to smite them as soon as good old dad was gone and dead. And it would have been really tempting for Joseph to do this, as revenge sometimes is called a dish that is best served cold 17 years later. It would have really cold, right? <laughs> but No. Joseph has a clear view. I am not God. And I won't sit at his seat at the head of the table. 
am I God? Am I in the place of God, he says to his brothers, in this family squabble and strife? I'll say this, and I think it's true. Most of your problems in life, most of my problems in life, come from putting ourselves in God's chair, in his seat. At the head of the table, placing ourselves at a place only reserved for God. Most of our problems come from that very thing. In fact, every time we sin, actually, or we decide what is right for us, or anybody in the world, actually, when every, every time somebody decides what's right for me, according to our own standards, what are we doing? We're putting ourselves in God's place every time, every single time. Think back to the garden. God gave them only. We go back to the beginning of Genesis now, the beginning of our series three years ago. Back in the garden, God gave them only one law. One rule, one thing to remind them and show them that they live under his authority and that they're not autonomous, they're not at the seat at the head of the table, and they need God. One thing. Would have been a really short Bible. Don't eat of the tree in the center of the garden. And do you remember, along comes the serpent way back in Genesis 3. Hundreds of years ago and three, thousands of years ago and three years for us, he said, comes to them and says, did God really say don't eat that tree? And he went on to tell them in Genesis 3, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, You'll knowing, good, knowing good and evil. What does that mean? You'll be like God knowing good and evil. Does it mean there was some magical property in that fruit and if they just got a, a drop of it, a taste of it, they would be God? Or as one commentator I said, her read, uh, said like, that the fruit was filled with God juice or something, just ate it and they were like, no. When Adam and Eve took the fruit, their primary sin was that they put themselves in God's seat. They stole God's seat. They decided what was right or wrong for them, not God. And doing that, has been causing our problems ever since, and yours. This, this was the great tragedy. This was the fall. And you and I, we've been stealing God's seed ever since, putting ourselves at the head of the table. We do it as individuals. We do it collectively as a town, as a state, as a nation, as a culture. We do it. I mean, just think about our culture right now. Some of the ways we're putting ourselves in God's seat with some of our, some of the pro-choice positions, our positions on sexuality and transgenderism. What could be attempting to play God more than doctors designing and retailing bodies? Think about our culture and putting ourselves in God's seat. Let's just not point the finger at our culture. How do we, how do you steal God's seat? I got a few practical ways for us. What are some of the ways that we too do this? How do we steal God's seat? Joseph said he wouldn't do it. We've got three of them for us. Here's the first one. Here's the first way we steal God's seat. By looking for ultimate fulfillment outside of God. Outside of God by looking for some, not just fulfillment, but ultimate fulfillment Life, identity, meaning, purpose outside of 
God. There was a time recorded in Acts chapter 14. Um, The early church, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, all those early missionaries. It was a story in Acts 14 when Paul and Barnabas, they were at this town called Lystra, and they healed a man who was crippled from birth, the ESV says, a man who had never walked. And Paul, in front of the crowds, comes to this man in a booming voice. He says, stand up and walk. And the crowds see it and they're watching. And and the man does. He stands up and he walks. And do you know what the response of the people was? They worshiped Paul and Barnabas. And they said, the gods are here. The gods are here. Who could have such power? Who could heal? Who can speak with words and, and heal a man? The gods are here. And Paul and Barnabas, they responded kind of like Joseph. They wept and tore their clothes and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what, what are you doing? This is foolish. We are not gods. We're not God. And in fact, there is only one God and we are not him, Paul and Barnabas said. Turn away from us to the living God. What do they do? It's so important. They refuse to steal God's seat by becoming gods to these people, by becoming their ultimate, by becoming what they would view as fulfilling their every hope and desire and dream. They're here. The gods are here. But we do that with all kinds of people in our life. Sometimes we don't realize it. Here's some examples. How many voices are in our life that tell us that They're the ones who can help us. They can make us whole. They can deliver us. They they might not come right out and say, I'm God. But every teacher, every leader, every spokesperson, every pastor, every counselor, every doctor, every politician, I mean, there's, there's power that comes with promising some type of deliverance. We all have those messages spoken to us many times a day. But even every, each and every one of them, even the most powerful person influence in your life can maybe only help you really a little bit. <laughs> that might be hard to hear. But whether it's a counselor, a doctor, your spouse, your pastor, a teacher, a leader, every person can really only help you a little bit. And at some point in their life in front of you, they should tear their clothes, probably just a sleeve or something, tear their clothes in front of you and say, what are you doing looking to me? Am I in God's place? I'm not. Am I in God's seat? Like Paul and Barnabas did. Like Joseph did. I mean, it's the same even for the most intimate relationships of love. If you fall in love. I speak to our youth right now. Some of our younger who are single, who are hoping to find a partner, hoping to maybe be married someday. By all means, do so, and by all means, fall in love, but don't expect, and this goes for those who have been married decades even now, don't expect a significant other, don't expect a girlfriend, don't expect a boyfriend, don't expect a spouse to fulfill your deepest needs. Only God can do that. If you place that on them, you will crush them. Same with our children, any of our children. They were our ultimate, and you wanted them to fulfill your deepest needs. That's a burden nobody's meant to bury except, or a burden to carry but God. Only God can do that. And if you do that with a person or any other thing, it'll, it'll blow up your life. It'll blow up your life. 
We saw Jacob do that, didn't we? Look at Jacob's obsessions and what he did. Remember, first it was Rachel. It was Rachel. Then it was Joseph. He favored his boy. And then it was Benjamin. He he favored his other boy. And what did it do? It tore the family up, didn't it? They're still reeling from it. They're still reeling from it. He destroyed his family and God had to put the pieces back together. Only God ultimately fulfills. He was only meant to at the head of the table. The first one, so don't put yourself in God's chair by putting somebody else in God's chair. Here's the second one. How do we steal God's seat? Here's another one. This hits home for me. By worrying too much. By worrying too much, we put ourselves in God's chair. I won't ask you to raise hands, but just think of how many of you struggle with worry. Uh, Eve raised it. Yep. (laughs) Anxiety. Yeah, I see some of you guys. Yeah. Yeah, if you're willing. Yeah, I am right here. How many of you struggle with worry and anxiety? It's a way we steal God's seat and put ourselves at the head of the table. You're like, well, how does that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I worry because I realize I'm just, you know, I, I, you know, what can I do? You know, I can't really do much. And Fear not is the commandment most spoken in the Bible. Do you know that? Fear not. And Joseph says it here twice to his brothers. Jesus was saying it all the time. Why are you afraid? Or question for him. Fear not. Why do you worry? Why are you so anxious? In fact, he said it to the disciples. You remember when they were on the middle of a raging sea in a boat about to be capsized and waves were coming over. Is there any more uh, uh, unrealistic time to ask, don't fear? Really, Jesus? Don't fear? The boat's going under and you're taking Z's in the corner. (laughs) Don't fear? When we worry or are anxious, we are stealing God's seat. Why? Worry is a way of saying, I know how my life should go. I know what I need. Move over, God. I'm getting in the cockpit. Give me the controls. Let me sit at the head of the table. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, what does he say? I know what you need. Your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. And he's actually the only one that can deliver it to you. So why are you worrying? Now I know, because of the fall, do you know something? Even our biology and our emotions are fallen too. Every part of us, it's a comprehensive fall. Not that we're each as evil as we could be, but every part of us is tainted and corrupted by the fall. So I know that that means some of us are biologically or biochemically more prone to worry than others, and God knows that. He knows which of us that is. It's all the firstborns. (laughs) But the more we worry, the more we steal God's chair. We need to get out of God's chair. Get out of his seat. I think it's appropriate and it's okay for us to hope certain things will happen. It's okay for us to pray certain things will happen. It's okay for you to do that. But I don't actually really know what I need. And you don't know yourself as well as you think you do and know what you need. You might know what you think you need. In fact, you probably can't even name your most besetting sins. You probably can't name those. We have blinders to the things in our areas that are most sinful. And if you're saying, no, I don't, that's your blinder. (laughs) We can't even really identify our most besetting sins. That usually takes somebody else in our life. 
Hence, one of the primary functions of marriage, right? We worry too much, we steal God's seat. That's the second way. Here's the third, and probably the most primary in our story, by withholding forgiveness. This could have been Joseph's biggest problem. Obviously, given the story we know, they kicked him to the curb, beat him to a pulp, put him in a pit, and sold him as a slave. They beg for his forgiveness, and he grants it with, am I in God's seat? When you and I hold grudges and won't forgive, or maybe it's just we avoid the person we know we need to grant forgiveness to, or we avoid that hard conversation we know we need to have, or we gloss it over with, I'm fine, I'm fine, don't worry about it, when inside we're seething or really hurts maybe. When we hold on to those things and don't grant forgiveness, we're stealing God's seat. Sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes we don't grant it in this way. We kind of gloss it over. Somebody comes and says, I'm sorry, you will forgive me. We say, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. No, actually grant them forgiveness. I forgive you. When we hold grudges, we're stealing God's chair, and here's why. When we hold on to those grudges and harbor resentment and harbor bitterness, we think we know what that person needs. We think we know exactly what they need. Wow, if God would just give me the button of judgment for a moment and let me decide what they deserve, I would take care of so much evil in the world, wouldn't I? (laughs) Wouldn't you? When you don't forgive, what do you do? You hold someone in contempt in judgment and you you freeze them in that place of time with a spotlight, broadcasting it to the internet. <laughs> you just, you, you freeze them there. When God says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, we think we know what our enemies deserve. We think we should know what should happen to them, but do you? Do you really? Do you know where that person maybe started in life, where they've come from, what they've been through, and and do you know the motive of their heart every time? Do you? Do you really know that? This is not the idea of calling sin, sin. Many of you used the do not judge and said, well, who am I to judge? I can't call sin. I'll just, you know, 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 let it be, let life be what it is, you know, whatever they're you know, whatever they decide. It's not that. It's not calling sin, sin, or, or addressing sin in your life when somebody wrongs you or hurts you. It's not that. It's sitting in God's seat in judgment over them and not forgiving them and always treating them with that thing at the forefront of your mind. That's what is happening here when we withhold forgiveness. Think about the greatest way to give somebody power over you not to forgive. Do you know that? The greatest way to give somebody influence over you, maybe it's somebody from your childhood, maybe it's a parent from your childhood, maybe it was a best friend who's now an enemy, maybe it was a former spouse, an ex. The greatest way to give someone power over you is not forgive. Why? Because they're not thinking about you most of the time, right? You're not at the forefront of their mind usually, But they are, and what they did is at the forefront of yours. And you know what it does? It turns us bitter. It it, it turns us hard-hearted. We become obsessed with that person or that thing or that event in life and the grievance. 
And you know what you do? You actually end up becoming what you hate. It's an irony. You shrivel up inside. And you lose by uh, winning when you pay somebody back. And get that vengeance. Um, I was reading or listening to Tim Keller on this passage this week. And he said it best. He said, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try and be God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God in your life. Don't sit in his seat. Get out of his seat, in other words. In these ways that we do this, Joseph doesn't take God's seat. He says, am I in the place of God? And there's so many other ways in our life we do that. But so get out of God's seat. Don't sit at the head of the table only reserved for God. Joseph refuses to do it. And that's the first mark of a changed heart. Here's the second. We're going to go through these a little quicker. The second is Joseph take God's Google Earth view rather than the street view. Joseph takes God's Google Earth view rather than the street view. I know Google's listening right now. We've talked about this a few times. So I put a little TM up there just to make sure. So Google, play nice. I know you're listening. Just kidding. Just a joke. But we've used this example a couple times before. But I think it's so helpful. And since we used it before, I, I, I think it, it, to keep it fresh is... is is uh, helpful for us. When Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, he's taking a Google view of the earth. That, that fully drawn out view. And here, here's our area. It's a little, little not great to see, but you see Canby there, and there's Wilsonville up there, and our surrounding areas. We're right there in the middle, uh, bottom middle there of that picture. Joseph is taking a Google view of the earth when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. Or, or maybe you might call it on a mountaintop view, the high up view, the 10,000 foot view from the airplane. He was taking God's view of things in his life, of the things that were happening. Look at that picture there. When those first pioneers came up to the Willamette, or just think of all the other rivers in our state, beautiful rivers. As they came up on the street level to those rivers, I mean, they just thought, how are we going to, Get across this one again. Here's another one. How are we going to get across that? But you look at our Google Earth view here, you know, you look, you're like, okay, we've got I-5 right there. From this 10,000 of you, you can see, yeah, I've got a way to go. I can get across that river. Unless you're at the Wilsonville Bridge at 5 o'clock. You can't. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But how do you most often look at the troubles in your life? How do you most often look at them? Is it the 10,000-foot view where you can see God's view of things or at least trust there must be a 10,000-foot view? No, I think it's mostly the street level. We can't see over the mountains and even the hills in our life. Or for our metaphor example today, we view the problems of our life through the peephole, mostly. We look at them through that little peephole. This is the normal way we view problems or evil or bad things that come into your life. We view them down in the valley not up on the mountaintop. Through the peephole now, we think we've got it figured out, don't we? What does, that what does that do to us? We assign motives to people that maybe aren't there when something happens. We make false assumptions about people or situations or sometimes even a look on someone's face. We don't see into heart actions. We misinterpret words when we look through a peephole. 
We lash out when we look through only a peephole. Do you know how distorted a peephole is or a a fisheye lens on a camera? They distort everything. Joseph refuses to do that. He refuses to do that as brothers come and repent and confess and, and ask for forgiveness. He says, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. You did evil. It was evil to me. It hurt me. You meant it for evil, and it was wrong, but God was working something at the 10,000-foot level none of us could see, and none of us knew. We were looking through this little peephole, or Joseph, through jail bars, right? (laughs) It's many years of his life. It's so hard for us as humans to keep this perspective. I know that, because where do we live? We live at the street level, and you have a finite mind, and you, we can't predict what's going to happen after this service today, let alone in five years, or a year, or a week, or a month, or for those we love and that we're anxious about. We can't predict what's going to happen to them tonight. Do you live there on that street peephole level? It's hard to hold this perspective together. And usually most people kind of fall on a, and it's really a spectrum. It's not necessarily either, but it's a spectrum. We either have a really good grasp on you meant it for evil. Some of you have a really good grasp on that one. And we understand, you understand the world, world is full of people. Bad people do bad things to bad people. <laughs> and life is full of loss and heartache and blah, 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 blah. blah. Some of us live on that side. You meant it for evil. We have a really good understanding of that. You think the glass is half full? (laughs) What's it full of? (laughs) Right? The other side of the spectrum is the people that understand God is good. God meant it for good. Life is great. Life is beautiful. Things go well. Good things happen to good people. And if you're good, God will bless you. And if you live in those extremes and only looking through a peephole, when good things happen, what do you think? God is good and present. But then when bad things happen, what do you think? Either he's gone or he's failed or he's not there or he's evil, maybe even some would say, or I'm horrible and I've messed everything up, right? But Joseph and the Bible take an entirely different view, a third way, a different view. He takes the Google Earth view, God's view of life and the evil and the wrong that's been done to him, and hopefully you and I can too just a bit more today. The Bible is incredibly honest. If anything, I think Genesis has shown us that, isn't it? It's incredibly honest and raw and real. Life is full of horrible, evil things. And evil things will happen. And there's much pain. And sometimes that's the, 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 the regular. But God is good. And he will work everything, even every painful thing, for our good someday. We may see it in this life, we may not. But into eternity he will. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You did this evil thing, God used that evil thing. He didn't do it, but you meant it for evil. God used it and brought about this great good. Think of Joseph's father, Jacob, again. Think of his life. 
He lied to his father to steal the blessing. He lied to his brother Esau to steal the blessing. He destroyed his family. He ran from his problems. He played favorites with his boys. But it was through his sinful choices even that he met Leah. Who came from Leah? Jesus. Jesus came from Leah. He used his choices to bring about good. And you might, okay, you might be hearing it and go, okay, well, are you saying it's okay to sin because God is going to use it? No. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Jacob should not have done those things, all those horrible things. And if he had not done all those horrible things, would God still have brought about his plan of the Messiah? For sure. It was his eternal plan. And his life probably would have gone better if he hadn't done those things. So that's not what I'm saying. But what I am ultimately saying is you can't destroy God's plan for you. Amen. That's what I'm saying. And that's what Joseph is saying. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. See, you thought you could sink me. You thought you could destroy me. You thought you could beat me to a pulp, sell me, send me away, put me in jail and get rid of me. And I'd never be back. And look, I'm right in front of you. And I've been your savior. He was to his brothers. He was the savior of the world with all that famine. Remember that food stuff? He's so committed to you, God is now, that even through your stupid decisions and mine and choices, he is for you. He will work for you. He will grow you. He will not abandon you. Here's what that means. There is actually no plan B for your life. I know someone who says that quite a bit. Fret over every decision and then say, well, are you now on God's plan B for you? Did you find plan A? Was Jesus plan B? Look at Jacob's life. In other words, there's no plan B for your life. You can't derail onto plan B and then, I can't wish I could just get back onto plan A for my life. Can you imagine living that way, always wondering, am I on plan B, C, D, E, F? If God isn't sovereign, that's your life. That's how you're living. If it's not true, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Plan infinity. You don't know, it's random, meaningless chaos then. But what do we know? I know the plans for you that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for, for welfare and, and not for evil, to give you a future, to give you a hope. And we know Romans 8, 2, an appropriate time to point it out this morning. We know that for those who love God, all things do work together for good for those that call, called according to his purpose. You put those two verses and then you meant it for evil, God meant it for good together this morning. You put those together and what you get is a God who's involved in the everyday stuff of your life down to the minutest detail in all your things, everything. I know that's hard because we only see through a peephole. We only see through a peephole or, or as Paul said, like a in a dirty mirror, a dark glass. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. I've used him a few times. It's appropriate to reference him in our last message. The God of the Bible is so great that he not only breaks into life to do miracles, 
But it's involved concurrently at the same time and confluently. That means working through in all that occurs in the world without violating the nature of things. In other words, he's involved non-miraculously in everyday life, using all events for the good of his people. And thoughts scaled down from this are not the God of the Bible, but idolatrous shrinking. I don't even want to say that. Diminution, shrinking, diminished. Thoughts outside of that are shrinking down God. It's true you can't trust God to keep problems and evil out of your life. It's true. But you can trust him that he will work through every single thing, even if right now it's a peephole view. He's done that forever with his people. He promises he's going to do it. And this is truly why Joseph can forgive and and look and say, I know you guys wanted me dead. You did everything you could to destroy me. But look at what God has done. He saved you even through your own evil. That's the Google Earth view. Not a diminished peephole that we normally view through. That's the second characteristic. Here's the third final one of this changed heart Joseph shows us in verse 21. Joseph lets his forgiveness lead to practical love and kindness. He not only forgives, but he shows them such this, this, this overwhelming love and kindness. He doesn't just forgive and then turn his back or, you know, uh, oh, don't worry about it, I won't get revenge, I won't do violence to you. No, he goes beyond that. Look at verse 21 again. He says to them, so do not fear. I, and it's a very personal I there in the Hebrew, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is loving his enemies. And the fact that he doesn't take God's seat at the head of the table and take God's view of things, these two marks are actually what make it possible for him to show kindness after forgiving. The fact that he won't hold God's chair and he does view a bigger picture, that actually allows him to be a forgiving person. It makes him humble yet confident. Humble because he knows, hey, I'm not God. I won't dare take God's seat at the head of the table. And so he knows as a man, he, uh, he has received a kindness beyond what he deserves called grace. So he's humble. But then on the other side, he's, he's confident. He knows of grace. He knows his performance isn't what brought him into this place in life. It was God's grace, and so he's confident in God. Christians can be the most humble and yet the most confident people at the same time. It's kind of a paradox, but it's a confident in someone else, not ourselves. Do you have that assurance that God's love is absolutely for you? Like we talked at the picnic last week, singing over you with love and isn't resting on your performance. How can we do that? How can you do that if you don't have that assurance today? How can you ever have the marks of this transformed heart? I mean, how can I have the humility that Joseph had to not get revenge? I so badly just want to say something to her or him or do something. And the confidence he had to love those who had sought to take his life now. How hard would that be? I think back to that school, elementary school years back. I forget the name of it now. There were, when there was, I think it was some Amish who forgave the shooter. I mean, how do you do something like that? They, they wanted to take Joseph's life. I think it comes in Joseph's last words to his brothers. God will surely visit you. 
and you shall carry up my bones from here. So how do we become like Joseph? It's in that verse, God will visit you and carry up these bones. What's Joseph doing there? He's resting in the promises of God. He's pointing them to the exodus to come. He's pointing them to the future salvation, the promised land, the deliverance of God, the promises of God. And can't you hear the early notes of the gospel in that? God will visit you. He will carry up these bones. God will visit you. Yeah, he has, Jesus. He's come, he's come to earth. And if you weren't sure that Google Earth view of life is correct, what about the greatest act of evil that was ever done on the earth? You know what it was? The crucifixion. And what did God say about that? This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked, so God meant it for good, you did wicked, evil, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. If God could do that with the crucifixion, can't he do that with your bumps, your valleys, your hurts, your pains, your losses? God has visited us in a way we never could have imagined, and he will visit us again, his second coming, right? You hear the gospel in Joseph's words, God will visit you, and do you know what he'll do on the second visit? Raise these bones. Raise your bones. He will carry up these bones. But not to be buried again in some other far land like Joseph's were, but resurrected to a new life, a new physical life, a new earth with new bodies and new bones. God is going to do us good. You know what I love about this book? I love it. It, it, It's bookended with God's goodness. Do you remember back? Here's a couple of verses for us to close. Back at the beginning. God saw everything he made, and it was good, very good. And at the very end here, you know, all that's happened in between was all meant for a lot of evil. But the, one of the last words in the book is, but God's doing good. It's bookended with God's goodness. And right in the middle was Jesus, as Isaiah said, who was the Lord's good plan to bruise him, fill him with grief. However, when his soul had been made an offering for sin, then he shall have a multitude of children. Oh, that sounds like our language. Many heirs and nations. He shall live again, and God's program shall prosper in his hands. Pray with me. God, you are good. You bookended this book with goodness. And you're the God that can take hard things and redeem them and use them. But Lord, we do see through a peephole. It takes trust, it takes faith, it takes stepping out with courage, Lord. But God, help us trust your character this morning as we live for you, as we refuse to take your seat, as we view the world as you would view it. And forgive as we've been forgiven. Lord, give us hope in this world that through the peephole looks chaotic and looks as if it's breaking at the seams, yet we know, God, you are going to remake this world someday, a new heaven and a new earth. And so give us that 10,000 Google view in our life and our relationships and our church and our community. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Genesis. The word it is to us. In Christ's name, amen.